0: Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill.
1: I'm Kathy Buckman.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about season one, episode 10 of Ted Lasso, The Hope That Kills. This is the finale of season one of Ted Lasso. We're going to do a wrap-up show a little later, but Kathy, what do you feel about coming to the end of the season? Do you think we uh, learned a lot about leadership and adult development?
1: Of course we did. We learned many things, and I've been really pleased with the range of stuff we've been able to talk about. This last episode gives us even more important stuff to talk about.
0: It sure does. And I have to say, what, one of the things that strikes me is how much has happened in these 10 episodes. These are short episodes. These are like five hours of TV. This is the equivalent of uh, a, a long movie and a shorter movie. And just so much has happened. If you think about the arcs of people like Nate, Jamie, Roy, Keely, Rebecca, Higgins, and Ted it's hard to believe we've covered this much ground with this many people over this short a period of time. And again, it's just a testament to the economical way that Ted Lasso handles all these intertwined plots.
1: Yeah, completely. And I think the fact that we have so many characters and the show moves so quickly through all of their arcs, I think that's part of what allows so many themes to crop up that have to do with how people are learning and leading.
0: So season one, episode 10 of Ted Lasso, opens with Nate arriving to find his daily duties have already been completed, and ultimately he meets Will, the new clubhouse attendant. He believes he has been fired, but it turns out that he has, in fact, been promoted. He's now an assistant coach. We've had a number of episodes where we've had three or four different things happening in the first two minutes of the episode. This one, like the previous one that focused on Roy's decline, focuses on one simple thing, Nate's ascendance. Roy, having been displaced from the starting lineup, hands over his captain's band to Ted to present to another first string player. Ted refuses. He insists that Roy choose the new captain.
1: Yeah. And this is really in keeping with what we know about Ted makes sense that Ted as an inclusive leader would want to delegate this kind of thing.
0: In the face of relegation, Ted gathers the team to discuss playing the formidable Manchester city. Nate shows a video of Jamie talking trash about the team and about Ted in the pub. Ted and Coach Beard are approached by the standard trio of patrons. He suggests that they have hope, which they find uproarious. May, the barkeep, tells him that it's the hope that kills you.
1: This obviously is where the episode title comes from. And this is a pretty standard saying, very representative of what you could call British pessimism. We'll have a lot to say about optimism and pessimism later.
0: Nate will go on to repeat that the situation is hopeless, to which Ted deploys one of his believe signs. The next morning, Ted visits Rebecca to tell her that he'll understand if she fires him. This new Rebecca tells him of a Dutch saying that every disadvantage has its advantage, and that Ted's unique view on the game should empower him to cause complete and utter confusion. This advice inspires Ted to poll his players for trick plays or elaborate set pieces as Coach Beard tells them they are called in Britain. As the players provide their fancifully named plays, the theme song to the Harlem Globetrotters plays behind.
1: I love this scene. And it sort of makes me wonder if whiteboards are used this much by sports teams. I'm guessing that they are. And that's another thing that the business world and the sports world have in common is a fondness for whiteboards.
0: I'm just going to speculate as well. I actually think I saw whiteboards, especially with magnetic pieces on them, as are shown here in the sports world long before they were common in the standard business environment. Although in the startups I've worked in, they have been around from the beginning, very much part of the startup and the tech world experience. Jamie is approached by a fan in a barbershop, of course, who shows him a video of Ted, who only speaks well of Jamie and says that he is always rooting for him. It should be noted that Jamie, himself not aware of Rebecca's previous machinations, believes that it was Ted who got him returned to Man City. The fan encourages Jamie to see this as a mind game.
1: Yeah, we've seen this fan before. Did you recognize him?
0: No. Who is he?
1: He was on the airplane with Ted and Coach Beard. This seems to be the role this particular character plays is puncturing people's illusions. He was the person who told Ted that he was completely crazy for coming to the uk to coach
0: in his confusion i think we can call it a common feeling for jamie he turns up at keely's place only to find roy opening the door keely tells him that ted does like him and that not everyone in jamie's life is out to get him now it's the evening of the game we see the crowd in the stands rupert and beck's at home the fans at the pub in the locker room roy presents isaac with the captain's band Ted tells them that he's none too crazy about the phrase, it's the hope that kills you. He believes in hope. He tells them he believes in believe. He asks them, do you believe in miracles? When Nate asks, Beard tells Nate that this is from film and real life. And the reference seems to be from the famous US win over the Soviet hockey team in the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. The announcer, Al Michaels, asked the viewers, do you believe in miracles? And in the following years, this became a model for sports teams throughout the U.S. And it was later made into a movie starring Kurt Russell as the team's coach. As the match starts, Jamie gets out ahead of the defense, but ignores a teammate on the wing and takes an ill-advised shot that Richmond's goalkeeper, Zoro stops easily.
1: Classic selfish Jamie.
0: Richmond earns a corner kick and encouraged by Nate, Ted calls for the Sandman. Danny Rojas' trick play. It's close, but saved by Man City's keeper. At halftime, the score is tied at 0-0. Ted starts Roy in the second half. Early on, Man City scores on a penalty kick. Jamie breaks away again, only to be run down by Roy, who stops him, but in doing so, seriously hurts his knee. He is forced to leave the pitch, the crowd once again chanting for him, perhaps for the last time. Soon thereafter. We find out that Crystal Palace has won their game 6-0, meaning that Richmond only has to tie to elude relegation. Ted, long overtly against ties, embraces this possibility. After a foul, Isaac, the captain in Roy's stead, calls for the lasso special. The players line up as if they were an American football team, much to man City's surprise and confusion. The play results in Sam with the ball and a perfect pass to Danny, who scores on a beautiful bicycle kick.
1: Cristo Fernandez, who plays Danny, was actually a teenager playing in the Mexican Professional Development Leagues when he injured his knee and turned to acting.
0: Oh, so interesting because he enters the series as a player with a hurt knee. Yeah, he does. After this goal, deep into injury time, Jamie once again breaks free. And this time, Jamie makes the pass and his teammate scores. On his way from the presser afterwards, Ted sees Jamie seemingly alone, but then realizes he is with his father, who's dressing him down for making the extra pass. With the believed sign as a backdrop, Ted praises his team for their effort. They may have lost the game, he tells them, but they have succeeded nonetheless. As Marcus Mumford's version of You'll Never Walk Alone plays under the scene, he tells them that while they are all sad, there's something worse, being sad and alone, and none of them are alone.
1: Yeah. We're going to talk about the speech that Ted gives here a little bit later.
0: We now see Coach Beard deliver a note from Ted to Jamie. Way to make that extra pass is all it says. And a toy soldier is in the envelope to boot. A reminder that Ted will always be there. In the last scene of the season, Ted offers his resignation to Rebecca. Rebecca refuses and Ted already starts planning for his relegated team to be promoted to the Premier League and even win it all. The episode ends on a final shot that I think we have to discuss. I have to say, I didn't love it. Having accepted Rebecca's offer of water, Ted takes a big gulp and, surprised by the carbonation, spits it out, spraying Rebecca. And the final shot is one of Rebecca's drenched face. They have certainly have switched out the lighting. I think they've even switched the lenses on the camera here to highlight the droplets on her face and to distort her face. And this, I I guess it's supposed to be funny, but this seems humiliating to give it its due. This is clearly another fish out of water moment. Ted does not expect bubbles in his water, but in the logic of the show, it's easy to see this as a sort of delayed payback for Rebecca's scheming. Ted was so understanding and so forgiving. And this almost seems a little bit like "Mm, payback and not consciously, but somehow, I, I don't know.
1: Like a Freudian slip? I don't,
0: uh, maybe.
1: Here's why I would call it a Freudian slip. The, The Freudian slip is when you do something you didn't think you consciously wanted to do, but expresses some kind of unconscious desire. I guess you actually could read it that way, that this is Ted sort of revenging himself on Rebecca. I don't know. I agree with you. I do not like the ending. I mean, I know this show has a lot of physical comedy. So the spit take, as this is called, is fair game. And there was a notable spit take in the pilot. The very first press conference that Ted attends on his first day at FC Richmond, he takes a sip of water, gets surprised by the carbonation and spits it right back out. So maybe this is sort of bookending that, but I agree. I feel like it, it it's a little bit of a sour note and it definitely raises the question about whether Ted is actually trying to leave Rebecca in a one-down position.
0: I had forgotten about that. So yeah, that's a very similar scene. Again, if we think about the logic of the show, what it might be suggesting is that, while Rebecca has changed dramatically, she has given up her vengeance plot to actually support the team and want to make the team better. Ted, on the other hand, how much has he changed, really? He has released himself and his wife from their marriage, but has he changed enough? I think that's perhaps what we're being set up for in the second season. Maybe there's something more that Ted has to undertake before we can feel that he has fully come around. So did you see anything in this episode that picks up on some of the themes that we have discussed previously?
1: Definitely. As the final episode, it's really trying to wrap a lot of things up. It's trying to call back to a lot of things that we've seen already. And from the point of view of leadership and learning, a couple big things stand out. Nate's promotion. Feels important. It feels like the culmination of the trajectory that we've seen, where Ted has consistently been noticing Nate's ability and giving him more and more responsibility. We may recall that Ted noticed that Nate made a very good sports drink, and then later in in the season, Ted invites Nate to share his thoughts about the team. He invites Nate to. Suggests some plays. And so now at this point, we're kind of at the culmination of that. So this feels very in keeping with inclusive leadership.
0: So it's a culmination of Nate's arc as sort of a growing leader. And it's also, as you're pointing out, a suggestion had Ted Ted's an inclusive leader, like he recognized Nate, who was the kit keeper as potentially something much more. And that has come forward in the show.
1: We also see a callback to one of the things leaders need to do, motivating the team. And previously, we had talked about the range of options that a leader has, including praise and negative reinforcement and anger and inspiring the team. So when Nate shows everybody the video of Jamie trash talking, this is clearly one of those reinforcement moments that's supposed to pull the team together. We also see a scene... Where the coaching philosophy here, which is Ted's leadership philosophy, this John Wooden approach, there's a scene where Ted really makes the connection between fatherhood and being a coach really explicit. I think he's doing some kind of video call with his son.
0: That would be, of course, Apple's FaceTime.
1: And he says very directly that he is trying to be a father to the players at Richmond.
0: Yeah, this is interesting because we know that he lost his father at a young age, as he revealed in the darts competition he had with Rupert in a previous episode. We have speculated a little bit that he is trying to play the role in the life of his players that he did not have at their age.
1: Exactly. And then I think the final callback I'll mention is we talked about how leaders need to influence others, but they also need to balance that with the willingness to be influenced by others, there's been this long campaign, at least over the last few episodes of Nate and Coach Beard trying to get Ted to really engage on what relegation is and what it means.
0: Which culminates in Coach Beard's explosion in the pub, you remember, where he calls Ted selfish for putting Roy's feelings above the team's results.
1: And this is really the episode where that finally sinks in. And Ted starts asking some curious questions about relegation to really understand it. So we see him as a leader accepting that influence.
0: And how about any new themes that you see?
1: Yes, I see two really interesting new things going on in this episode that I've just been really looking forward to talking about these things. So the main new leadership theme as I see it in this episode is really anchored in the episode title the hope that kills you. Leaders sometimes need to strike a balance between things that seem hard to reconcile. And in this case, the things that Ted is juggling are pessimism on the one hand and optimism on the other hand. And what makes me really excited is that I get to talk about this in terms of this wonky thing called polarity theory that I love talking about, but I've also really dreading talking about.
0: I've heard you talk about polarity theory before. It is one of these things that you really like to employ in tough situations.
1: Yeah. I think it's a powerful framework. Unfortunately, you can sound crazy when you try to describe the framework itself. Oh, this ought to be good then. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, okay, you and I are old enough to remember Don Rumsfeld and he was famously mocked for trying to describe out loud a two-by-two matrix on television. Do you remember this? The known knowns, the known unknowns.
0: So what Rumsfeld says, we know there are known unknowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And your reading of this is that he's sort of running through a two-by-two two matrix in his head of knowing versus not knowing and trying to enunciate that, right?
1: Oh, yeah. That's totally what he's doing.
0: So that works great on a PowerPoint, but doesn't work so great in a press conference.
1: Completely. If he had the PowerPoint behind him, he would have been fine. It's just trying to describe it without a visual.
0: So a little revisionist history here on Last Lessons. We're resuscitating the reputation of Don Runsfield.
1: I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that I take away one important lesson. Don't try to describe a two by two matrix without a visual. So let's back up and let's talk about what is polarity thinking or, or polarity theory. It's an approach to problem solving. It's associated with consultant Barry Johnson and his organization, Polarity Partnerships. It is a really powerful framework for thinking about problems and situations or options that you face that don't have easy answers. Barry Johnson has written a book. The title is Polarity Management, Identifying and Managing Unsolvable Problems. So let's look at the problem that this episode of Ted Lasso presents. Is it better to be an optimist or is it better to be a pessimist. People have strong opposite opinions on this question, but who's right? So Mike, I'm team optimism for sure. I'm guessing you aren't.
0: That's presumptuous. I I have polarities within myself. To paraphrase Walt Whitman, I'm huge. I contain polarities.
1: All right. So you don't want to identify with a team, but I think there are a lot of people who are team pessimism, right? Like a lot of the people in this episode will say it is better to be a pessimist. So, yeah, who's right? How do you figure that out? So, what I'm going to say is, it's not really a choice. You could spend a lot of time trying to decide which was better and never really come to an answer. A polarity is a problem or a situation where either or answers are just not going to be the right answers. There are really just two interdependent possibilities that exist on a spectrum. And You can get really challenging results if you take either one to extremes. So think about it this way. Optimism has some clear upsides. Being optimistic is energizing. It's inspiring. It focuses a group of people on possibility. But there are clear downsides of optimism, too. You can tip over into blind belief, ignoring real issues and challenges. And yes, you can set people up for disappointment.
0: Okay. So that's the problem with leaning into optimism. So why not lean into pessimism?
1: Well, pessimism has similar dynamics, right? There are some clear upsides to pessimism. You pay careful attention to real barriers. You would be likely to do a careful management around expectations and that expectation management is going to provide some psychological protection But the downsides of pessimism are clear too. It can be highly demotivating to a group of people, basically giving up before you even try. So it cuts off the possibility of an outlier or a really special scenario that numerically doesn't look likely. What I'm really saying is that if you think about the upsides and downsides of both ends of this spectrum, Ted and the British fans are just really focused on different quadrants of this polarity the fans are really much more worried about the downsides of optimism so they tolerate the downsides of pessimism and ted is really the reverse he worries so much about the downsides of pessimism that he almost entirely focuses his attention on the upsides of optimism do i sound like donald rumsfeld yet
0: uh, a little baby.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to keep going. We're going to get that classic answer. It depends. It really depends. And so when you're managing a polarity, like the one we're looking at here, what you really need to do is pick the spot along the spectrum from optimism to pessimism. That's going to provide you with the most upside in the current situation that you're facing. And you also need to have in mind what you're gonna pay attention to that will tell you that you're leaning too far in the direction you've chosen to lead into. So if you start seeing too much downside, then you really need to shift. And if you're a leader, that's what your job is basically, is to figure out where on that spectrum you wanna move the group and what you're gonna pay attention to and how you're gonna know when it's time to shift.
0: Is this maybe what Keely and Rebecca are talking about in the stands before the game?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Rebecca and Keely have a pretty direct conversation about the optimism versus pessimism polarity. Keely says very directly, I've never really cared that much about football. And now that I'm starting to care more, I realize that it's kind of painful. This is really the dilemma of having a sports team that you follow and that you care about, is that it can be psychologically painful to care. But the upside is that winning can be really transcendent and, you know, a really fantastic experience.
0: I think we know where Ted stands pretty firmly. You know, he gives that final room speech asking, do you believe in miracles? He's way out there at the end of the whole optimism spectrum. I would note, though, and I think this is really important, that there is a darker side to Ted. We've seen him struggle throughout the series with drinking, I would argue, and with panic attacks. And maybe there's something about embracing anything, even optimism at its extremes that you pay a price for.
1: I think that's exactly what polarity thinking would predict is there's a real cost that comes with anchoring yourself really firmly in any one of these quadrants, because you're going to suffer the downsides of the thing that you're leaning into, and you're going to have a real blind spot, which is the upside of the thing that you're not considering. So this is why I think that the Do You Believe in Miracles locker room speech that Ted gives is quite important because it's hard to argue that that isn't fundamentally the coach's job. The coach's job is to make the team feel like they can do anything and to send them out onto the pitch feeling like this is a thing they can do. It's not really a moment for bald realism. That's The magic of the believe sign is to say, hey, anything could happen. We don't have a crystal ball. We could win. But I agree. I think there probably are consequences for Ted in maintaining and believing in this stance that he's taking on behalf of the team. He may be shading into a kind of, oh, I don't know, the cost for him may be in terms of his own letdowns and the things that he can't show the team that he
0: feels. So that's polarities. And I think you said you had a second big theme that you were really excited to talk about.
1: Yes. Okay. So the second big theme here is strategic thinking. I think any business writing or journal will tell you that one of the domains that really belongs to leaders within any business organization is to set strategy. As a leader, you're expected to be able to think strategically. Well, what does this really mean? It's kind of what is your organization and how are you going to be successful? I've always found it interesting that the big strategic choices in business are often framed in terms that sound like sports. So, you know, one of the famous phrases is strategy is about where to play and how to win. Leaders have to think about what their competitive advantage is. They have to think about the competition that's out there and figure out what's going to give them an edge over the competition. There are some frameworks for strategic thinking, obviously. You know, you can fill whole books with strategic thinking frameworks, but there is one that I think is relevant for talking about what we're seeing happening in this particular episode of Ted Lasso. The book is called Blue Ocean Strategy: How to Create Uncontested Market Space and Make Competition Irrelevant. It was written by W. Chan Kim and Renee Moburn. I think they're both affiliated with NCAD. In that book, Blue Ocean Strategy, the suggestion is that leaders can actually try to avoid direct competition by playing a game that other companies aren't even playing. And that strikes me as, yeah, that's pretty much what Ted ends up doing.
0: So Blue Ocean Strategy is something that's been, was made popular maybe about a decade ago. The focus in strategic thinking has largely been on two factors. One is which either differentiate yourself significantly from the competition so you can charge a reasonable or even a premium price or become a low price leader by cutting costs and then compete on price. And they're saying both of these are just painful ways of trying to eke out a living and that they're could be other strategies by which you sort of completely redefine the market, not so much finding brand new markets as it is, rethinking the market and coming up with a way of approaching it, which allows you not to be playing inside these very, very narrow frameworks.
1: I think you've got it exactly. And and if you can find a way to offer what you've got into the market, you're essentially creating your own market. You're playing your own game. And in this episode, I think Ted is confronted with the reality that FC Richmond, they just can't beat Man City. They just don't have the talent to make it work. So direct competition in this case is just not going to work. But Rebecca's remark that Ted's lack of experience as a soccer coach could actually be an advantage, this new cognitive framing for Ted allows him to lean in on playing a different sort of game, inspiring chaos deliberately. Using trick plays, the use of an American football lineup in a Premier League football match is exactly like a blue ocean strategy. Time to take something from some other company's playbook and put it into your own and see if it provides something valuable.
0: One of the key blue ocean approaches is instead of looking at your rivals and copying and trying to just sort of bend what they're doing a little bit, look at other industries, look at other products or services learn analogously from other industries, from other games, if you will. And that's sort of what Ted does by bringing in some American football, and in particular, the lasso special, as he calls it.
1: This disruptive strategic augmentation that Ted attempts here, it works to a point. But unfortunately, the team really can't overcome the talent deficit that they face versus Man City. They can't win the match, but they do the rest.
0: So those are two big themes. But I think at the end, though, there's also a big callback, right, about emotional intelligence. What is the leader's role when things haven't gone well?
1: Yeah, you're right, completely. I think that Ted's speech that he gives to the team after the match is really a very important example of emotional intelligence on Ted's part. He, I believe, is trying to give the members of this team a way to experience their emotions, giving them the room to be angry, the room to be sad, but then also giving them some instruction in the moves that you would make in emotional intelligence to then move on from those feelings. And the main thing that that I think he's trying to say to them is it's okay to feel those feelings, but what's going to help you move on is to remember that you have each other. And this to me seems echoed really strongly in the scene where the match is still going. Roy has left the pitch. He's alone in the locker room and Keeley goes and finds him. And he's very adamant that he doesn't want her there. But Keeley is equally insistent that he not be alone in this moment. This, I think, is a really important part of emotional intelligence, understanding that the emotions that you have, at least when they're shared with others that those people can be a resource to you in getting through something that feels very difficult. And you know I can't help but connect this to the lyrics of the song, You'll Never Walk Alone, because that's really the title. I've known for a long time that this particular song, which actually comes from the American musical Carousel, is associated with the fans of Liverpool. They sing it as an anthem. And I think that's kind of the point, is that if you join a legion of fans, you have a group of people who will feel what you feel, and you'll never walk alone through those feelings. There'll always be someone there to support you.
0: Yeah, there's a pub just down the hill from where we live that has a giant, you'll never walk alone banner out front. It's a bar where the fans of Liverpool gather, of which there are many here in San Francisco, because there's a large contingent of people from everywhere, including Britain.
1: I am a bit of a sci-fi nerd. This song is used in the famous British sci-fi novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's where I first encountered it, but it really is sort of a nice sentiment. And I think it leads us very clearly into what at the end of this episode, we can say that Ted has accomplished. In usual sports estimation terms, he has not accomplished much. His team has been relegated. They've been demoted from the Premier League to the lower level Championship League. But I think on the emotional side of things, on the team building side, he really has accomplished quite a lot. You may recall that in the pilot, we meet their previous coach who was a bit of a bully. And you may also recall that Jamie... And his side pricks were bullying Nate in the first couple episodes. A team that was just rife with bullying and with unrealized talent has been transformed into a truly united group of people that are supporting
0: each other. Speaking of optimism, Ted, when he hears that Rebecca is not going to fire him, is not going to accept his resignation, Ted says, great, we'll get promoted and we'll win it all.
1: Yeah, that's Ted. That's the power of optimism if you lean into it. You're always up for the next challenge.
0: You wonder about realism as a potential <laughs> as a potential strategy amongst us all. I think that's great. I think that is season one, episode 10 of Ted Lasso, The Hope That Kills You. It's been quite a season. We've come a long way. What's amazing is the arc of the season is a failing team. And yet, as Ted said, uh, there's been success. We've seen Rebecca forego her vengeance plot to embrace actually improving her team. We've seen Higgins stand up for himself and become a more confident manager. We've seen Jamie actually pass the ball. Roy, he apparently won't be playing football, has learned to see himself as something besides a footballer. And Keely has broken out from being somebody who, as she said, was famous for being almost famous to having a budding social media career and even being named head of marketing by Rebecca for the team. Rupert is still Rupert, but but every show needs an antagonist. The arc here has been one of loss, but of incredible gain across the board otherwise.
1: I think so. If you wanted to create a show to show us that winning isn't everything, I think that's what season one does.
0: John Wooden would be proud. Indeed. So that is season one, episode 10, the season finale of the first season of Lasso Lessons. And we will be coming back with season two we're going to take a break. We're probably going to provide you a few little interstitial episodes, summing up what we've learned and maybe a few other things as well. So we hope you'll join us for those. And we hope you'll join us in the new year for season two of Ted Lasso. Please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: If you've made it this far, thank you for listening. We're looking forward to season two.